Podcastle 319 for July 10th, 2014. America Thief by Alter S. Reese. Rated R. Contains bullets, mobsters, and magic. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. The place if you're looking for fantasy of all shapes, sizes, shades, and creeds. Here at Podcastle, we find the best fantasy there is out there, melt it down to liquid audio perfection, and put it in your ears. I'm your host and co-editor, Dave Thompson. I've mentioned this before, but growing up in a relatively strict evangelical household, my parents had a funny relationship with fantasy fiction. Here's the really odd thing. Science fiction... Spaceships and blasters, FTL travel and alien species, those were totally kosher. But fantasy, fantasy was a different beast. If it didn't have an obvious allegorical element, it was kind of viewed as, well, maybe not downright heretical, but borderline apocryphal, if that makes sense. Magic was seen as something supernatural, and the supernatural... That was either God stuff or devil stuff. If Gandalf or Willow Uffgood or whoever wasn't doing miraculous magic in the name of the Almighty, well, they were suspect for being on the other side. Or, more accurately, the underside. This is obviously a position I shifted away from. Hell, even my parents shifted away from it. They did end up taking me to Star Wars, which I guess was cool despite that new agey force because it had spaceships and blasters and frickin' laser swords. They eventually caved and let us watch Willow in the movie theaters. It was one of the many cultural hurdles my parents managed to overcome from their own upbringing. Thank God for that. Today's story is America Thief, and it offers a different, albeit fascinating, cultural look at God, God's followers, and magic. It was originally published at Strange Horizons in 2012. Alter S. Reese is a scientific editor and field archaeologist. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife Naomi and their son Uriel, and enjoys good books, bad movies, and old-time radio shows. Alter's work has appeared in Strange Horizons, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and elsewhere. You might remember his previous story here at Podcastle, Rumor of Wings. Our reader this week is John Mishna, fresh from Feeding the Trolls. He's an actor, director, and grad student living in Pittsburgh, and has read several stories for us here at Podcastle, most recently Caleb Wilson's A Duet in Reyes, which was featured in our flash fiction extravaganza, Tales of Strange Inspiration, and Peter S. Beagle's Underbridge. So, pour yourself a drink, Get into the back of the car and enjoy the story. America Thief by Alter S. Rice I looked across the back seat of the Lincoln at Siegel, and he flashed me one of his movie star smiles. He was smiling because there was a chance that he'd shoot me before the night was out. Not that he had anything against me personally, but Siegel liked killing people. His name was Benjamin. To his face, people called him Ben, and when he wasn't around, people called him Bugsy, because he was a mean crazy. My name was Bainish, and people called me Benny when they wanted to be polite. When they didn't, I was that nut Newman, because I thought that I could do magic. 
bat, they'd call me to my face, to my elbow, and to any other body part they wanted. Bugsy wasn't going to kill me that night, because while they thought I was crazy for thinking I could do magic, sometimes people needed me to do magic for them. Siegel had told the driver to take us up to Lindy's at Times Square, so I had a pretty good idea of who wanted to see me. I wasn't wrong. He was sitting in his usual booth, tall, thin-lipped, with a big smile and anxious eyes. The man uptown, Mr. Arnold Rothstein. Hey, Benny, he said. Step up, have a seat. I stepped up, and I sat down. There was the usual crowd at the table. Mostly Jews, but also Irish and Italians, even a colored fellow. Rothstein wasn't picky about his company, not that way, and he needed to have people around him wherever he was. Me, I'd have rather not have been there, but not because I hate Mix or Dagos. See, it was a Friday afternoon, and since it was winter, sunset was coming on, which was a problem because I had agreed to go to a Sabbath dinner at my parents'. I didn't mention this because I had a feeling that Rothstein wouldn't care about sunset, the Sabbath, or the sort of headache I got after a fight with my old man. A waiter brought over a steak for me and told Rothstein he had a call. The man uptown went off to talk business, and I chowed down. Lindy's was the furthest thing from kosher, but despite my parents' best efforts, I didn't care about that. If I had, I might have missed out on a damn fine steak. I was halfway done when Rothstein came back to the table. So, Benny, he said, you want some work? I chewed, I swallowed. That depends on what sort of work, I said. The sort of work that means you see another day, said one of Rothstein's friends, an ugly Irish guy. Easy legs, said Rothstein. It's the sort of work that you're uniquely suited to pursue. Mr. Lansky is the fellow who brought this circumstance to my attention, so... Maya? Siegel was Lansky's friend. From what I heard, they had set fire to pushcarts whose owners didn't pay protection, back when they were kids on the Lower East Side. Lansky was one of the men who walked in Rothstein's shadow. You know Hyman Goldberg? asked Lansky. The Goldbug? I asked. Yeah, I've seen him around. He's some sort of fence, right? Some sort, said Lansky. Buys and sells precious metal. He's selling more gold than he's buying. Offense, I said. Cheating people? Funny, said Lansky. The gold he sells checks out. We've had it tested. I looked over at Rothstein, who gave a little nod of his head. If there was anyone in that crowd who could secure the honest cooperation of an analytic chemist, it was Rothstein. Goldbug's dad, said Lansky, owes me money. Which is how I found this out. Julius Goldberg is making his payments, and he's not earning enough to be making them. I knew the Goldbug because his family went to my father's synagogue. That Yittle Goldberg had borrowed money from Lansky and couldn't pay wasn't a huge surprise. There were eight kids in that family, and Yittle was a good enough salesman to support one kid. One kid who didn't eat much and never needed new shoes. So, I said... You think that Goldbug is making gold out of nothing? Lead, said Rothstein. He buys a lot of lead. I looked around the table. Most of the people there weren't paying much attention. Lansky looked a little embarrassed, and Siegel shook his head. 
You want me to find out if Chaim Goldberg can turn lead into gold or if he's running some sort of scam, I said. Of course he's running a scam, said Lansky. I want to know how he's doing it. My friend Meyer is unfortunately narrow-minded, said Rothstein. I am willing to entertain the possibility that he's getting his gold through means that are not generally considered possible, which is why I have entrusted this task to your care. So you want me to find out where Goldbug is getting his gold from, I said. And? No and, said Rothstein. Just that. It's a simple job and I'll give you a thousand dollars for doing it. Thousand dollars is a lot of money, Benny, said Legs, putting his oar in. Lift things up a little. Show your girl a good time. To the extent I had a girl, it was Rivke Krantz, and there was a limit to how good a time I could show her as she was in prison. Either Rothstein knew that, or he just didn't like it when Legs pushed himself in where he wasn't wanted, because the look he gave the Irishman wasn't entirely complimentary. In any case, he said, turning back to me, that's the proposition. Interested? If I wasn't interested, there'd be problems. Arnold Rothstein isn't a guy you turn down without a good reason. And hell, a thousand dollars was a lot of money. At some point during the conversation, the waiter had replaced what was left of my steak with a slice of cheesecake, so I dug into that. It's an interesting story, I said, when it was clear they were waiting for a response from me. I'm interested. They had nothing else to say, so I finished my cheesecake and headed for the door. Siegel was waiting outside. Give Rothstein an answer, and quick, he said. None of us wants to waste time on this craziness. Siegel had dropped into Yiddish to find the right word for craziness. First time any of them had said anything in Yiddish. It seemed that the whole conversation had gotten under Siegel's skin. It had gotten under my skin, too. Siegel went back inside rather than driving me back out to Brooklyn, so I paid my nickel and was rattled and battered as the IRT made its clattering way out to Brownsville. When I started studying magic, it seemed like a ticket to a world that wasn't supposed to belong to people like me. Now I was running errands for gangsters, which was exactly what was expected of people like me. It didn't put me in the Sabbath spirit. There were a couple of cops waiting for me at the Saratoga Avenue station. They didn't help my mood either. Come on, Benny, said one of them. We're taking you in. I didn't... I started, and he lifted his billy club. I went. Four weeks, nobody comes to visit. The one day I want to go visit my folks, everyone wants to talk to Benny Newman. They bundled me up into a car and drove me over to the station, which was a madhouse, it being Friday night. Hookers yelling they hadn't been hooking, stuss dealers yelling that they hadn't been gambling, religious guys yelling that it was Friday night. Me, they didn't take to booking, so I didn't have a chance to yell about anything. Just a quiet concrete room with a quiet man sitting behind a desk. They sat me down, so I sat. Neither the detective nor the uniform said anything, so I didn't say anything either. It's a game that cops like to play to rattle people. I'd prefer cards, maybe even chess, but cops aren't good at playing games more complicated than the not-saying-anything game. Benny Newman, said the detective, finally. I was tempted to say something smart, but that would earn me a club to the back of my head and wouldn't make the cop any smarter. Yeah, I said. 
I got a club to the back of the head anyway. Show some respect, said the guy who hit me. Yes, sir, Mr. Officer, sir, I said, which got me another shot, this time in the ribs. That one I had been expecting. Easy, boys, said the detective. You're a con man, Benny. You're a thief, and you associate with criminals of the worst type. That last part was true. I mean, these guys behind me had just committed assault, and the guy behind the desk was slandering me. I didn't agree, because I didn't want them to do it again. Slander hurts my feelings. What do you want from me, I asked instead. Tell Rothstein that the kid can turn lead into gold, he replied. He wants to believe it. That was interesting. Okay, I said, sure. I am sure, Benny, he said, standing up. Do you know why I'm sure? Because being not sure required enough brains to think something and also think that it might not happen. No idea, I replied. It's because there is a Miss Rebecca Krantz currently enjoying the hospitality of the Women's Reformatory at Bedford Hills. Bedford Hills is a fine institution whose staff makes every effort to reform the depraved and degraded souls given over to their care. And yet, despite those Herculean efforts, accidents do occur. If you do not tell Rothstein that Hyman Goldberg can turn lead into gold, an accident will happen to Miss Rebecca Krantz. I looked across the table at the detective. He was wearing a shoulder holster, badge clipped to his belt where I couldn't see the name. Brown blonde, thinning hair, bit of a gut. An American, born in America. He probably had a dog when he was a boy. He was playing with me. A man doesn't talk like that unless he's having some fun. I thought of a few things that I could say to him, thought about them again, and said nothing. Rivke Krantz was up in Bedford Hills for three months for lewd and obscene behavior, by which they meant being a hooker, even though they didn't actually catch her hooking. If I talked back to Detective Chamber of Commerce, he'd make a phone call and they'd beat the shit out of her. Best case, they'd beat the shit out of her. Lansky and his crowd think that I'm a fraud. Rothstein thinks that I'm an errand boy. The cops think I'm a con man and a thief. They're all right, and they're all wrong. I was holding my hands in my lap. I made a series of small, sharp motions. I took all my rage and pain and turned it into a little ball, like the little balls of dirt you get when your hands aren't clean and you rub them together. I didn't have any hair or skin from this guy, and I didn't have his name, but he had given me enough shit to swallow that if I loosed that spell it would have killed him. I didn't, for two reasons. First, if you want a guy dead, you give a guy like Siegel some money, and the guy dies. Quicker, easier, safer than doing it with magic. If I had cast the spell, the guy would have gotten cancer, or fallen down a flight of stairs, maybe next week, maybe five years later. Some guys I knew in the Bronx, for two hundred bucks they'd have his body in the East River before the Sabbath ended. Guaranteed. Second taking all that bile and spite and shaping it into an instrument of death. Magic shapes its maker. I should turn myself into the sort of witch who blights crops and kills lambs in their birthing for some penis with a cheap suit and a badge. So what, I said. You want me to go back to Manhattan and tell Rothstein the kid is legit? 
The penis smiled again. No, he said. Not tonight. You know your business better than that. You take a few days, poke around, do your hoodoo. Then you tell Rothstein what we want him to hear. Sure, I said. No problem. Then they let me out to finally make my way to my parents. By this point, I was late enough that I halfway wanted someone else to grab me off the street, yell at me for some reason, maybe threaten to kill me. No such luck. Instead, I had to go to my parents' apartment, where the Sabbath candles were burning in the window, and my father was sitting at the table. He wasn't happy. Your mother, he said as I came in, was worried sick. She went to sleep crying. Sorry, I said. Things have happened. Things, he said. Things that keep you out until midnight, looking like... If you want me to tell you about them, I said, I'll tell you about them. He paused. We don't have an easy time of it, my father and me. And hearing about my work didn't make it easier. It's late, he said. Have the meal. I didn't follow the rules, but I knew them. I said the blessing over the sacramental wine, washed my hands, said the blessing over the bread, and so on. The less said about the wine, the better, but the soup was warm and good. For the first time since Siegel had driven up to me on that street corner, I started to relax. So, said my father, what things? He asked. I told him. That Krentz girl, he said when I was done, she's nothing but trouble, I've said that. If I ask you if Yiddel Goldberg takes money from charity, you wouldn't say he does because you don't say that sort of thing. The Krantzes, everybody knows they don't. They don't work either. So Rivke does what she does. And work in a factory is too good for her? I tell you what, Pop, I said. You try and feed three people on what a girl can get in a factory and you can ask that. He never liked it when I called him Pop. He also never worked with his hands for a day in his life. He was a rabbi, and while that didn't pay much, it was better than factory work. And you can't give her enough from your money? When I have extra, I try, I said, but she... But all your money it goes for to make magic. Unlike most people, my father believed I could do magic. He also believed that I was going to hell for doing magic, but I'll take what I can get. If I didn't make magic, I wouldn't have any money coming in, I said. And the factory is too good for you also. You know what? A factory is too good for me also. A factory is such a good place that I can't walk into it. That's why I do what I do. He sighed, shook his head. So what are you going to do? He asked. Do, I said. I'll look around. Maybe this kid is legitimate. That'd make everybody happy. You don't think he is? I shook my head. Making gold out of lead, it's hard to do. An expert, maybe, but a kid who's taught himself? No, not possible. And it's important for you to tell the truth to these people? I shrugged. I don't like lying, I said. It's good you have principles, said my father. The problem is that they're stupid principles. I had to smile. It's not just principle, I said. Rothstein finds out I lied to him one morning I wake up with a hole in my head. You are a charming little boy, you know that? said my father. Everyone would give you things because you are so charming. You would say your prayers every morning with such concentration. 
Better we should have stayed in Galicia than to see you come to this. I was four when we left the old country. I didn't remember it very well, but I remembered it well enough to know that it wasn't pleasant. You want I should buy you a ticket so you can go back? If I go back, do you come with me? My expression was a sufficient answer to that one. So what do you want? I should go to be killed by the Polacks? I don't want... I started, and then shook my head. I don't need this on top of everything. I headed out of the kitchen for my old room, and my father called out after me. You think that these problems are things which happen to you and it's not your fault, he said. I turned and looked at him from the doorway. I didn't invite myself into Siegel's car, I said. People who lead decent lives, he said. Do they get invited to rides like that? He had a point. But if I decided to walk the straight and narrow, I'd leave Mr. Rothstein feeling put out, and I hate to upset a man who employs so many violent people. So I went to sleep, instead of arguing further. The next morning I went to synagogue with my father. Normally I would duck out of that, and there weren't too many objections when I did. My father wanted me to be in synagogue, but he also knew that when I showed up it wasn't an advertisement for his skills as a spiritual leader. Maybe the people there didn't know all about the magic, or the gutters that I rolled in. But they could tell I wasn't living in full accordance with ritual law. I wasn't there to live according to ritual law. I was there to look at the Goldberg family. The women were up in the balcony, Yiddle and the boys at a row near the back. Most of the old men at that synagogue took it seriously, swaying back and forth, eyes closed and faces creased in concentration. Some of the younger men were like that, too. Not Yiddle and not Goldbug. Yiddle spent the whole time talking to people near him, except when he started drifting off to sleep. Then he got annoyed at some of the kids who were talking and shushed them loudly. Goldbug didn't talk much, but he also didn't pray much. He just sat there, folded into himself and sullen, in a shirt whose sleeves were too long and a jacket which was two sizes too small. By my reckoning, Goldbug was fifteen, but he looked maybe twelve. When the services were finished, there was always a bite to eat. Not a lunch, but a snack, with tiny cups of sacramental wine. Rather than jostle in, I watched the Goldbergs. Goldbug pushed in and stuffed a whole handful of crackers into his mouth before my father finished the blessing on the wine. And while his father was less obvious about it, he didn't need any less. If Goldbug was turning lead to gold... The Goldbergs weren't turning gold to bread. I thought about going over and having a chat, and didn't. It could be that I was going to leave the Goldberg family with the impression that someone broke into their house to see their kid's chemistry set, which meant that I shouldn't go over and start talking about their kid's chemistry set. It's insights like these which make men like Arnold Rothstein seek me out when they have a problem too complicated for them to handle on their own. After services, it was lunch with my folks, which was as much fun as could be expected, and then back to my place in the Bronx. The next morning, back to Brownsville. One of the few luxuries that the Goldbergs enjoyed was that they lived in a row house rather than a tenement. The house was owned by an uncle or a cousin or something, and he let the Goldbergs live there without paying rent. It wasn't a very nice row house, but when you have ten people and no money coming in, well... If there was a heaven, that uncle or cousin or something was buying shares. 
Hell, I'd say a psalm or two for him myself. He gave them a house opposite a candy store where I could sit and watch the goings-on at the Goldbergs without being obvious. There was also a crowd of loafers outside, so when I was done drinking egg creams and reading magazines, I could go stand outside and loaf. It was perfect. Unfortunately, the situation at the Goldbergs wasn't perfect. Sadie Goldberg left her house with one of her daughters, Adele I think was her name, at about six. She came back at seven with a few bags of groceries. Then the kids went out to work. Yiddle left later at around nine. Before Yiddle left, Goldbug came back from wherever he went in the morning. Then Sadie left an hour before noon. She cooked for the Rosens. After she came back, Goldbug went out. Then the other kids started coming back at about six. Yiddle came back last with a stagger in his step. Gold into liquor he could manage. There was no time when the house was empty. The closest it came was during lunch, when there was nobody but Goldbug there. I had hoped to get in, look at the kids' setup, and leave without anyone noticing me. That wasn't going to work. Also, the egg creams at that place across the street from the Goldbergs were terrible. They used half as much syrup as they should have. It was like a kiddie version of watered rum. I wasn't completely out of ideas. There were plenty of pawn shops around, so I found one and got a gold brooch for two bucks. If the guy had known it was gold, he'd have charged more, but pawnbrokers don't have as good an eye for that sort of thing as wizards. The stones were fake. The originals had probably been replaced. And the thing was, well, maybe a Hungarian would like it. I balanced it in my hand. About a quarter of an ounce. Four dollars metal weight. One of the benefits of my career is that you learn to recognize things like that, particularly when it comes to gold. There's a connection between gold and the magical world. It was either that or I was just more Jewish than most guys. Point being, I knew what I had. I stopped Goldbug on his way home. Hey, I said. Kid. Yeah, he replied. I was watching his eyes. He wanted to be home, but he was willing to wait. I heard you buy gold, I said. Sometimes, he said. I passed the brooch over. Dollar fifty, he said, handling it. Four dollars, I replied. Oh, come on, he said. You want four dollars for this, go to a jeweler. You want to get rid of something hot. Dollar seventy-five. Who's saying it's hot? I found it in a Cracker Jack box. Three. Look, I don't have time for this. Two twenty-five or get out of my way. Hell of a way to do business, kid. Two twenty-five, fine. He paid me out in a pair of crumpled bills and a quarter and took the brooch. An interesting exchange. For one thing, I had made a profit. Not enough that I was thinking of going into business selling gold to Hyman Goldberg, but enough to pay my egg cream expenses. Wherever Goldbug was getting his gold, it wasn't from pawnbrokers, or there wouldn't be deals like that at a hawk shop two blocks from his house. Also, he knew gold when he held it. Once the kid was out of sight, I uncrumpled the bills and took a long smell. Mostly they smelled like money and like damp pockets, but there was something else. Jasmine. Things had changed since I was a kid. Nobody talked about the Kaiser anymore, and there were a lot more automobiles and a lot fewer horses. But while it was possible that the style of grooming among the youth of Brownsville had changed, I didn't think that they had changed enough for the boys to be wearing jasmine perfume. Similarly, while it was possible that the techniques of wizardry had changed since I learned them, 
those don't change easily. And jasmine, that is, oil of the jasmine flower, collected when it opens on the first night of summer, was one of the ingredients that was used to turn lead into gold, which was interesting. Also interesting was a big Lincoln that slowed down as I finished sniffing my bill. Siegel was in the back seat, but he didn't call me over or anything, just gave me a smile, and then the car drove on. Two days I had been working, and already they were impatient. Impatient with guns. If they wanted a quick answer, I had one. The kid was doing magic. Which was nice. It was good to see someone from the old neighborhood taking an interest. But I couldn't tell Rothstein to be happy about his goose and go on collecting those eggs. Goldbug was too poor, too young, and too careless to be turning lead into gold. I couldn't get into that house when it was empty, because it was never empty. If I had a month to work, something might have come up that got everyone out. Or I could have come up with a trick that'd get them out of the house. But I didn't have a month. I had two more days, maximum. Maybe it's something wrong with me that I'd like to find a clever solution when clever isn't called for. I spent the night tossing and turning, trying to come up with something that'd get me what I wanted, and which would make me feel good about getting it. I didn't. The next day, half an hour after Sadie Goldberg went out to fix lunch for the Rosens, I went to the door and I knocked. I heard the footsteps coming up from the basement. What now? said Goldbug, opening the door. I got my foot in the door and stuck an automatic in his nose. I hated to do it. If I wanted to make a living sticking guns in kids' faces, I'd have a nicer apartment. I've got a problem with the money you gave me, I said. What problem? he said, trying for tough but wobbling. I pushed in, keeping the gun on him and closed the door behind me. I don't like money that smells like jasmine, I said. It confuses me. Where's your lab? Lab, he said. Jasmine? You're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Look, kid, I said. I'll look around and see what you're up to and then leave. You want to steal my secrets, he said. Yeah, I replied. Sure. I want to steal your secrets so that I can live in a palace like this one. Here's the thing. It'll be just as easy for me to steal them if you're dead. It won't, he started. Shut up, I yelled, which made him jump. It was like arguing with me from ten years ago, and I hated doing that. If it had been an apartment rather than a row house, someone would have noticed the noise. Nobody did, and Goldberg noticed that, so he marched down into the basement. Turned out the basement was his room as well as his lab. A stack of dime novels, flimsy shoes and old clothes, and some tools I recognized. I hadn't been lying when I said I didn't need his help to figure out what he was doing. The tools, the materials, the order in which things were laid out told me what spells he was casting and how the process was supposed to work. There was a crucible and a salamander stove with the channel set up so that... Where'd you learn? I started, and then he hit me with a frying pan. Caught me right on the side of the head. I staggered for a second, stars flashing behind my eyes. Goldbug had the pan up again, took another swing. I stepped back. He missed, fell on the floor. Hero Israel, I said. He tried to get up, still holding the pan. The basement was underground. I took out my pistol and shot his bed. The bang and the shower of feathers got through to him. He put the pan down. 
You weigh maybe 80 pounds. You really want to take on a guy with a gun? It's my secret, he said. I found it. You have no right. I leveled the gun at his forehead. Right doesn't enter into it, I said. You come out of the basement when I'm still in the house, I'll kill you. I went back upstairs, put my gun in my pocket, and checked myself in the hallway mirror. I looked a mess. A frying pan, for God's sake. Kids watch too many movies. I had found what I was looking for. I got on a train over to Manhattan. I felt like I had gone ahead and cast that spell on the policeman. Hell, I'd rather have loosed the spell than broken what little privacy that kid had. At least the cop deserved it. Magic shapes its user, and life shapes people. Like my father said, decent people don't get pulled into things like this. I did what I needed to do it. But what would I need to do next time? Not that this thing was done just yet. I got out at Times Square and went over to Lindy's. "'Good evening, Mr. Newman,' said Rothstein as I came in. "'Have you resolved the little problem which I set for you already?' "'Mind if I sit?' I asked. "'Please do,' he replied. "'The kid can turn lead into gold,' I said, "'but it's not balanced.' There was some hardening of faces at that, and knowing grins on others. Lansky kept his face from showing anything at all, but the rest thought that I was about to sell a bill of goods. Rothstein just looked impatient. What do you mean, it's not balanced? It's sort of like... I tried to come up with a good analogy. It's like a horse race, you know? The odds aren't balanced. What, said Legs, the fuck are you talking about? I gave him a disgusted look. Look... You know how when the horses run around and around and there are numbers called odds which all the people at the racetrack care about? I wasn't endearing myself to the Irishman, but he didn't say anything. Some horses have low odds, so if you bet on them you only get a little money if they win. And some horses have high odds, so if you bet on them you get a lot of money. Why do you think that is? Some horses are fast, said Legs, and some horses are slow. Not exactly, said Rothstein. Right, I said. Horses with low odds are horses that lots of people are betting on. Horses with high odds are horses not a lot of people bet on. Bookies don't care how fast a horse runs. They just want to get paid. An admirable exposition, said Rothstein. But I'm not sure I see the connection. A bookie who doesn't balance his odds, I said. It looks good, you know. He takes money in, and when the race goes in his favor, he can be pretty flush. But it's not a profitable business. So, sometimes it doesn't turn into gold? It's not exactly like horse racing. That's just an example. The gold he makes is real. It's yellow and shiny, and it feels nice when you touch it. But there's not enough going into the process. It looks for balance. So nobody associated with that gold sees much of a profit until the gold gets balanced. Rothstein shook his head. I still don't understand, he said. Try a simpler explanation. Pretend that you're talking to Legs. Legs didn't like that joke, which was too bad. I thought it was funny. When someone turns lead to gold, I said, they have to put something into it. Skill, experience, effort, materials, all that. They have to put in enough to make the equations equal. Goldbug isn't doing that. So the gold, it takes things until it balances itself out. 
Rothstein gave a short nod, but didn't seem convinced. The Goldbergs live in a dump in Brownsville, I said. Goldbug wears patched jackets and socks that are mostly holes. This is what you expect from someone who can turn lead to gold? And Mr. Lansky, he's got a pigeon on a string who pays $200 in gold every week. Why would he want to sell you someone like that? You think I was trying to sell? started Lansky. Yeah, said Rothstein. Yeah, my point is the kid has potential, but he's trying to take shortcuts and getting nowhere. A little instruction he could... No, said Rothstein. Meyer, you wanted 20000 for the father's debt. Rothstein pulled out the biggest wad of cash I have ever seen. Well, that I had ever seen since the last time I saw Rothstein pay someone. You'll take eight and a quarter and you'll be happy. Lansky hesitated for a second, then shrugged. Sure, I'll take it. Rothstein riffed through the cash in his hand. Here you go. Then he peeled off some bills for me. Benny, I said a thousand. That's yours. So long as you don't say word one to that kid about changing his methods. You do that. It's still yours, but I'll have people kill you. You understand? Not entirely, I said. He'd be worth more if he knew what he was doing. People come to me with things, he said. If I can make a profit in it, I'll do some buying and selling. This kid, this kid I can unload. Someone who looks like he's worth a fortune but doesn't produce shit? There are a thousand people to whom I'd love to give that sort of present. Truth is, I did understand. I just didn't like it. The gold is eating him up, I said. It's taking parts of him, looking for balance. Five years, maybe ten years, he'll be dead. Buddy, said Legs, he can join the club. That got a laugh from Rothstein's crowd. Well, I said, you own him now. It's your call, I guess. Exactly, he said. I decided not to argue. I made my way out to the street, where I loitered for the better part of an hour until Meyer Lansky came out. Mr. Lansky, I said, can I have a couple of minutes? He shrugged. Sure, why not? Siegel and another of Lansky's guys pulled up in the big Lincoln. Hop in. It wasn't ideal, but I hopped. So, I asked, good enough? Good enough for what? asked Lansky. Good enough that Rivke Krantz enjoys the fresh air and cool weather of upstate New York without anything bad happens to her? If they wanted to shoot me, I had mailed a letter to a lawyer in Omaha, Nebraska, who I kept on retainer. Nobody knew him. Hell, I didn't know him. But every week I sent a letter. When I died, things would be published which would cause all kinds of upset. Lansky didn't seem bothered by my accusation. He settled into his seat, straightened the cuffs of his shirt. He was a little guy, but he seemed taller than he had at Lindy's. At a guess, I figured Lansky was about twenty, maybe twenty-two. In Rothstein's shadow, I'd have said eighteen. Sure, he said. How'd you figure out it was me who sent you that message? Who else would care if I told Rothstein yes or no on the gold bug, I said. Lansky gave a half-smile. And you found a way to say both. If the kid performs, you said he could. If he doesn't, you said he wouldn't. I shrugged. You could be having this conversation with Rothstein, continued Lansky. Why me? Because I've told Rothstein what he needed to know. Now it's your turn. Hey, said Siegel, you want me to shut this fellow up? No, 
said Lansky. He's got a letter somewhere. So what do I have to know? That maybe I'm a nut, but I'm not a stupid nut. Benny, said Lansky, I think it's you who needs to know some things. My friend Mr. Siegel thinks that you're a fraud. More than that, he thinks that I think that you're a fraud. But you're not a fraud, and you're not a nut. I didn't say anything. Here's another thing you need to know. I don't care that you're not a fraud. Rothstein is a gambler, so he's superstitious. More than that, he's excited by superstition. Me, I have an advantage. I have a lack of ambition. A lack of ambition, I asked, seeing as how that was expected of me. Exactly. I make money with things I know, with things I understand. I make a lot of money. I don't need to jump into things I don't understand to try and make more. I had to admit he had a point. And you're telling me this, I said, to let me know that if I get in between you and money, you'll have me fed to the bears in the circus. That got a chuckle. Exactly right, he said. Not exactly right, said Siegel. It'd be the river, same as everybody else. I'm not some kind of body disposal poet. Close enough, I said, and they let me off. It had been an interesting few days, and I had a thousand dollars. The problem was I had earned it by turning a child over to the slaughter. A horrible child who had hit me in the head with a frying pan. My father was still awake when I came in, reading something in close-written Aramaic. What do you want? he asked. I took out a book, wrapped in paper. It was from my collection, and I hated to let it go. I pushed it across the table. This is a dangerous thing I'm asking, I said. But next year, or the year after, see that Yiddle Goldberg gets this for Chaim. He touched it like it was on fire. This is one of the tools of your trade, he said. I'd sooner give him poison for his children. It's to save the kid's life, I said. There are three things, he said, which it is better to die than transgress. Idolatry, adultery, and murder. It's not idolatry, I said. It has nothing to do with idols. It's magic. Yeah, it's magic. And Maimonides... In the Guide to the Perplexed, Maimonides says that magic comes close to idolatry, I said. But he doesn't say it is idolatry. Wounding comes close to murder, but it isn't murder. And as such, it isn't worse than death. You still remember, he said. You've gone away, but it's still there. I had shifted into rabbinic Hebrew and Aramaic there, in addition to Yiddish, because that's how conversations like that work. So I had to admit that he had a point. America thief, I said. America thief, he replied. It's a phrase that means, America, you clever rascal, you're a hell of a place. And which also means... You take so much away, America. We meant different things by it. We were both right, and there was nothing else to say. He hadn't touched the book, and hadn't said that he would, and I wasn't going to press it. I gave my dad two hundred bucks, most of which he'd probably give to charity, and I went home. If Rothstein found out about what I'd done, he'd have my parents killed. He wouldn't, because the part of town he's from... It was a wall between people like me and people like my father.
Also, by the time my father passed the book along, Rothstein probably would have forgotten about the whole thing if he was still alive. I'd have been better off if I hadn't done anything. Goldbug was never going to like me. But what the hell? Sometimes I do things because I have to. Sometimes I do things I don't have to do. And welcome back. America, thief. America, you take so much. America, you clever rascal. You're a hell of a place. America, you're Loki. America, you turn lead into gold and make us all fools. America, I'm tempted to keep on going and doing a full-spec fic turning Allen Ginsberg into some kind of elf. America, you clever rascal. Happy Fourth of July again, America. Boom. That was weird. America, I've noticed several fantasy stories set in this kind of early to mid-20th century world, like a new kind of subgenre akin to the weird western. I don't know if it has a name. Magic and mobsters, maybe? Whatever it is, I like it. I like it a whole hell of a lot, America. Feedback this week, well, I think we're going to double down. First up is Damien Angelica Walters, When the Lady Speaks, read by our own LaShawn Wanick. This was the story about a fortune teller who was struggling to come to grips while her daughter lay in a coma. Not a lot on our forum for this one, to be honest. Devoted135 said, I thought this story captured the tragedy and the heartbreak of the situation really well. I appreciated that even through the lens of the mother's hate, it's clear that her daughter's husband was not evil. He's just a guy who made a terrible mistake and was doing his best to deal with the high cost of it. I was really rooting for the threads to work their magic and bring the daughter back, but I also interpreted the last bit to mean the daughter was giving her mom permission to let her go. The week after that, we switched gears to bring you a very violent gore-fest of a weird western, Jeffrey Ford's La Madre del Oro, read by Phil Higante, about a group deputized to find a cannibal. And boy, did that posse go wrong real fast. Generally, though, it seemed to keep our listeners pretty well engaged. Like Listener, who said, I enjoyed this story as a round-up-the-posse-and-go-kill-the-bad-guy tale that took a dark turn. The reading was good. Not sure I'd put it on the best of 2014 list, but it kept me listening. And Atan said, I found the build-up to this story really engaging, and I liked the different characters and how they played off each other. But once they reached the mine and the story got to its resolution, I was dissatisfied. It sort of felt like everything built up before didn't really matter, and the considerably less interesting... The white men delved who greedily and too deep and found the Balrog, some sort of underground demon thingy, narrative. I wanted to hear more about Sandro and Fat Bob, not have them be killed off off screen. The narration was excellent, even if the accent was not consistent with the character's biography. Thanks very much for those comments, partners. Get yourself a taxi and come on down to the restaurant where all of us players talk about the stories and just about everything else forum.escapeartist.net is your address. We've got a booth in the back reserved just for you. See you there. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. 
Currently, we're not able to turn goodwill into gold, much less lead, so we do rely on you and your donations to get us through the night and keep our lovers out of jail. You get my drift, right? Thank you. That's our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anna Schwind, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Peter Wood, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a historical fantasy set in Mother Russia, courtesy of the one and only M.K. Hobson. Until then, this is Dave Thompson for Podcastle, reminding you to keep your friends close, but keep your frying pans closer. See you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote this week is from, oh, what the hell, why not, Allen Ginsberg? America, I've given you all, and now I'm nothing. But maybe gold, America? America Ginsberg didn't say that last bit. Oh, well, see you next time. <laughs>